Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and in this sixth season, we delve deeper into the world of clean tech startups and their founders, from inspiring stories and words of wisdom to the toughest challenges. You can expect to learn about how these pioneering startups and the founders at their helm are propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. In addition, they'll be offering you timeless teachings to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone everywhere to live their purpose. So today's guest is the CEO of one of Brightsmith's trusted partners. Chris Pateman-Jones has been involved in infrastructure for a long time. Before founding Connected Curb, he was a key figure in EY's global infrastructure business. He's an environmentalist with a PhD in biology, has a keen interest in reducing the adverse effects we are having on the planet. And that was the spark that transported him out of EY and into his journey as the CEO of Connected Curve. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we get stuck into the big EV charging debates, um, it would be really good to hear a bit more about your story and who you are in your own words. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for having me on on, on the show today. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, I think you've sort of summed it up fairly well there. I'm uh, someone who thinks that business has a real role to play in trying to drive the environmental transition. Um, I'm really proud of what Connected Curb is trying to do there. And I think also you've touched on my focus on infrastructure. I think infrastructure is a real platform to try to drive um, positive change in society. And I think that sort of hopefully feeds through in everything that Connected Curb is trying to do all about sort of smart infrastructure on the streets where people can use it. Fantastic. Um, and I guess big question, how does it feel to be at the helm of a, a company that is potentially going to have such a huge impact on the planet? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes. It is a tough job. Um, but it is, and I know I hate it because it's overly stated, but they say sort of um, pressure is a privilege. Um, in this instance, it really is. Um, I don't think many people get the opportunities in their careers to lead businesses, let alone lead businesses and amazing teams in a industry which is growing as fast and is going to have as big an impact as as what we are uh, or as what we're in. So as much as it is as it is tough, I think most of the CEOs in, in the industry that we're in would say that it is a massive honor to have the opportunity to do this. It is tough. And as much as the industry is growing at pace, there are some real barriers in front of us. Um, but I think we're going to get through those. Um, I'm very confident we will as a business, and I'm sure the industry will as well. And you touched on teams there, and I think um, I've had the privilege of seeing you work with your team. Um, and having seen lots of organisations over the years, I can say that not everyone does it in the same way. Um, and you certainly approach things with a real sense of calm, but also I can really see that you have that shared accountability with your team. It's not you making the decisions. It's a real kind of team effort with your executives and other members of the team. Like, how do you go about shaping that? Yeah, thank you for for that. That's a real compliment. I don't don't know that we're perfect at it, but I, I think what I try and do myself and what I also look for from my senior leadership team and my extended leadership team is a sense of perspective on things. 
Um, there are things that you can control and things that you can't. And as much as you should try and influence the things you, you can't control, they are out of your control. So you've just got to be flexible and work with them. I think that's quite important in an industry which is growing as fast as, as ours is because there are these things that come up out of nowhere and potentially disrupt you. But as long as you have that sense of context and are able to look back on last week and think, are we doing a little bit better than we were last week? Is this month a little bit better than it was the month before? then you have that perspective and you can see that you're moving in the right direction. Um, I think also what we have a challenge internally on, but also is a big opportunity is we set ourselves incredibly hard targets. We try and do an awful lot. Um, sometimes we need to prioritize more, um, but we do set ourselves extremely ambitious targets. The, that's a positive. The negative of of that is that you, you don't sort of, to use a sailing analogy, you don't throw out the anchor where you actually want to stop. You throw out the anchor and then you drift onto it. And that's the same sort of thing as my approach. I set really, really hard targets. I expect us to hit them. But if we don't, what I hope we try and do as a leadership team is bring perspective to actually still be able to celebrate that success. I think actually, if I think over the last six months or so, and maybe slightly longer than that, I think we've, in things that I'd like us to improve over the next six to 12 months, is being able to celebrate those successes. Our industry is moving so fast that it's actually becomes quite difficult to stop and celebrate what you've achieved. I mean, our our business is now 4,700 sockets. It's huge. Um, uh, we've gone from being a nobody in the industry to now about to become the biggest in the UK, which is massive. But again, those numbers are slightly off where we would like them to be for this year. And so we're sort of slightly depressed about that. And I think sometimes you've got to reflect on actually this is massive. And in the in the face of the headwinds that we're sort of facing at the moment, um, I think we're doing pretty well. And for our listeners who are not from the EV space, because we have a really broad listener base, can you give some insights into who Connected Curb are, um, where they fit into that EV charging infrastructure space, um, and also what your kind of longer term mission is? Yeah, so, well, maybe I'll go back to sort of where the business started. The business started and was set up. Actually, I'm not one of the founders. I, I, I joined shortly after the founding team. So there were five founders within the business, of which two of them worked on the London cycle hire scheme, the Boris bikes. And so they brought the sort of concept or the thinking and the knowledge of how do you deploy infrastructure in busy urban environments. And the aim and the starting point for the business was there, if you look at people who own EVs, even back then, the people who owned them were people who had driveways and could park off street. And they would typically be the people who owned EVs because they had complete convenience over where they charged or confidence they'd be able to find a charging point. They had ultimate reliability in those charging points. They knew when they were working, when they weren't working, and they also had the most affordable type of charging. And our challenge with that, and I think what the founders identified was there's a significant portion of the UK and global population who don't have that opportunity. They don't have off-street parking. They don't live in suburbia where they might have a driveway and can put a charging point on their drive. In fact, an awful lot of the population globally lives in densely populated urban areas where they don't necessarily own their place where their car parks or it may be away from a power connection. So the UK Housing Survey said that was about 62% of the UK population. Um, uh, we actually think that and we know from that same data that it's actually higher in urban areas, obviously lower in some other areas. And, and also in some urban areas, people don't necessarily drive as much. But still, it is a significant portion of society. And then we came at it from an environmental perspective. If you really want transition to green and sustainable mobility, you have to make sure that the transition is accessible for everyone in society. And it isn't unless you do provide that public charging infrastructure. So their aim and the thing that I've tried to bring forward is, 
how do you deploy a public charging infrastructure that delivers that same affordability, convenience and reliability as you get when you're charging on your driveway at home, but in a public setting? So that means we focus on long dwell, smart charging in workplaces, on residential streets and in car parks. Because of the success we've had in that, a lot of our clients have now sort of said to us, could you do rapid charging as well? And I guess that's an important point to mention because often in our industry, there's sort of a, um, there's a, a setup of a um, uh, an argument or a disagreement between rapids and ultra rapids and fast. There shouldn't be. You need it all. It's just relative proportions. Our view is that you should spend most time, and actually, in fact, the data suggests this, People will spend most time charging in long dwell locations, um, but you still need rapid and ultra rapid. And so our idea is that we'll span across all of those. We will partner with some others for different parts of it, but we're spe- our specialist area is in that long dwell intelligent charging. And if I can just say one thing on that, when I'm being provocative on that topic, I think we spend a lot of our time as an industry focusing on technological capabilities rather than the user's experience. That has led to problems in terms of public perception of EV charging, but it's also led to a focus on sometimes the wrong types of charging. So depending on the dwell, so how long you are parked in an area should determine the type of charging that you have. You don't need rapid and ultra rapid everywhere. And also, I would challenge in a setting where you use a rapid charging point and it takes 45 minutes to an hour and a half to charge your car in any other walk of life, whether that would be called rapid. By contrast, when you charge in your driveway at home and you plug in and your car takes 11 or 12 hours or maybe three hours, however however much charge you need to put into the car, your experience is 30 seconds. You turn up, you press go, and you're off doing something else. That's rapid. So there is a very big difference between the user experience and the technological experience. And we don't, as an industry, I think, focus enough on that. There's um, there's an episode of my show, just to plug an old series, with um, Sarah Sloman and Sam Clark. And they had a, a really good um, discussion around exactly that, around the, how the whole industry should focus on the user experience. And I think GridServe have done it very well in some of their locations. And Sarah was talking about it from the, the real kind of aspect of a user um and couldn't agree more often the people get lost in the tech but if the people don't have a great experience then they sort of start to um become more skeptical yeah I, and i think gridserve and and others in the rapid space have done phenomenal job on this i think it's partly driven by an industry that for a long time has had some amazing people in it that have been almost scrabbling around for 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 the scraps that are always at this at the at this stage of an industry where it's it hasn't really taken off. I think what's been really positive in the last twelve to twenty four months is the industry has taken off, and so I think you're beginning to see that people don't necessarily need to compete so aggressively over who's right. We're all right, um, and actually we need to just get on and deliver as much charging infrastructure as we possibly can. I guess the key part on that is it has to be, and I think GridServe and Osprey and others are all on board with this, it has to be infrastructure. You can't have the scenario which we've had for a long time now in terms of this, where you're actually deploying products that need to be replaced regularly. You have to think of this as a long life infrastructure that where the whole life costs of the kit that you're deploying are therefore reduced and you can keep tariffs low to the user. And I guess to talk about the the less positive aspects, or at least from a perception perspective, there's been some recent scepticism around the EV space as an entirety. How would you go about addressing that? I think that's um, 
Yeah, I think there's a few points on that. I think as an industry, again, we haven't done a great job in responding to that collectively, whereas we're up against um, other industry bodies that are extremely well funded and have been around for a long time. I think the positive that's come out of that is we formed Charge UK, and that is now beginning to have a positive impact in responding. Still, it is as much as the industry has come together, we're still a small industry relative to, um, to some of the others. I think what probably people are less aware of is the things that are up for negotiation at the moment and why that is maybe driving some of the lobbying that you're seeing. So um, there is, I think, a concerted effort to try and um, uh, slow down the zero emission vehicles mandate. You'll see there's data which I uh, that has been released to the market. It's not that the data is wrong. It's just that the data, I think, from the SMMT is maybe misinterpreted. And I, I think that is, a, again, from a view that I think the automotive industry, while some of the actors are very positive towards the transition, I think some of them would be quite happy for the targets to be allowed to slip slightly. Um, so I think whenever anyone sees the public press on the negativity around EV, I would always bear that in mind. What is the reason why this is getting so much traction at the moment? Where's this data coming from? Why is it being put out? And is there an alternative view? I think ZapMap has done some incredible work on trying to actually put out some of the real statistics on EV. And I also think when they people talk about um, the delays you see at charging, I don't see that as an EV driver. I, th- I see your behaviors as an EV driver being different. So yes, you do plan your journeys at the moment, but the times that I have to use rapid charging on arterial routes is very limited. And when I do, I don't actually tend to have to queue. I think what's interesting about the videos that you see, they're always the same videos. So if this was a massive issue, why are they always the same videos? They're the same video of on New Year's Day at a Tesla charging station where there was a queue of about 20 vehicles. Well, if this was a massive, massive problem, why are they always the same videos? I, I, I mean, so I don't think it's this bigger issue. And then the final point is, I think the industry is doing a phenomenal job at deploying thousands of new charging points all the time. I mean, we've added... I mean, yeah, we're 4,700 charging points now, but the likes of Osprey and GridServe and Instavolt are adding, and MFG are adding huge numbers of rapid charging points as well. There's always going to be supply and demand issues, um, but I think they're improving. I think if I pushed it back the other way, and I'm sorry I'm going on, on about this one, if I pushed it back the other way, where we're deploying, we're deploying ahead of the curve. We don't have enough EVs to use our network. So we are de- essentially, if you're deploying for a, a user group who parks on street, they won't adopt an EV until you put the charging infrastructure there. So we're actually deploying ahead of demand. And we're then seeing an 18-month wait for people when they press go, I'd like an EV. Nine to 18 months is the timeline that it takes to get an EV to be delivered on your on your street. So there are challenges on both sides. And I'd prefer it if the industry just sort of stopped slinging arrows and we got on and delivered stuff. And talking about how to make EVs more appealing. So you actually just made a great point there that people don't want to get an EV if there is no charging infrastructure on their street, if they don't have off-street parking. But what else can we do as an entire industry to to make that transition more appealing? So I think, um, and, and we'll be... Uh, I think there's some partnerships that we'll be announcing in the next few months that will hopefully um, do a pretty big job on that or, or on this on this point, which is I think you need to see greater collaboration between the automotive industry and the charging industry and with the government. I think that we underestimate how big a transition this is for quite a lot of people. This is something that many people have had for that. Well, in fact, unless you're under 10, this is something that you've had for the whole of your life is driving a combustion engine vehicle. And um, there are also, I mean, I don't know whether you saw the Exxon advert in the last couple of days where there is now an active anti-EV lobby coming out. 
and so um i think we have to recognize this is a big transition for a lot of people and we need to spend a lot more time educating people i remember as a child there was the buckle up campaign and i think we need to be pushing government to do something similar this is a big transition it's something that's really valuable for us all so why aren't we investing properly in educating people on it um we're aiming to run campaigns um highlighting the fact that this is essentially as good as petrol or diesel but actually just a bit better and a little bit less damaging it's not i think so when i speak to some of my friends um they we, i see these arguments quite regularly well why would i want to get an ev i'd prefer a lamborghini gallardo that's that's what it's never going to have the same sound and the noise i'm like yeah but you drive a ford fiesta you're, you're not you're not comparing apples with apples you don't have a lamborghini gallardo whereas the equivalent the equivalent EV to the normal cars that we all drive are far, 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 far better. Yes, a hyper car that's combustion engine might still be very exciting at the moment, but the EVs that I've driven over the years are phenomenally good cars. Um, so if you solve the infrastructure piece, I think you've, you've, you've done it. All of that said, I'm not the person to be selling that. I think this needs to be clever communication people who are out there doing national campaigns and also hyper-local campaigns. So what we try and do in the areas where we deploy is it's not me doing the launches, it's trusted people within councils doing it, and it's also trying to get local residents involved because the best person to sell you the idea of an EV is your neighbour, who you see every day driving the car, having no issues and loving their experience with it. You see that, you make the switch. If it's me as a CEO coming and telling you to use my charging infrastructure, of course I'm going to tell you that. About an hour before we started recording this, I had a text from a friend of mine who said, I'm sat in the BMW garage getting a service and trying to decide whether we should switch to an EV, but I've got two small kids. Is it a pain in the ass to have one? To which I said, no, it's not a pain in the ass." And they actually, they have a driveway, so they have an added advantage on most people. But um having a young family um i genuinely don't find it challenging driving an ev you're right sometimes you have to look be a little bit smarter on planning but i would say the number of times it's caused me a major inconvenience i could certainly count on one hand yeah and i i would agree with you and i used to have a bmw i3 and actually with young children the accessibility of that car was incredible actually in terms of tiny car but huge space in it because of uh, the difference between EV versus combustion in terms of the the innards and the workings of them. Um, but but also, I think when I look to the future of EV, if you think of most of the cars coming to the market now have 200 mile um, plus ranges and the more expensive ones uh, well up well up from that. If Connected Curb continues to do what it's doing and others in our space continue to sort of do the um, the long dwell charging in the destination locations. So whenever you're driving a long journey, at the moment, you're in a scenario where you don't know there's going to be a charging point when you get to your destination. So the typical behavior at the moment from users is, well, I'll charge halfway. I'll find a rapid charging point halfway on my journey so that I can get to my destination and back to the halfway point, charge again, and then get home. The future is not that. Right. So the future is wherever you get to, whatever destination you're going to, there will be a smart, long dwell charging point or a rapid if you need it. But ideally, one of uh, like a smart, long dwell one, which can help support the grid and do all those other things, meaning that you have confidence when you get there, you'll be able to charge, meaning you won't have to queue on a motorway. If you're doing an ultra long journey, yeah, the motorway charging is there. But if you're driving 200, 250 miles, why charge on the way? Charge when you get there because you'll have that confidence that it's going to be there. That's where there's a future opportunity. And that's when 
I don't think there is any inconvenience because again, you turn up, you plug in 30 seconds and you're in with your family doing whatever you want to do or you're at Thorpe Park or wherever it might be. And I think you touched on the grid there and whenever we're in debates about not necessarily the charging of today, but the charging of tomorrow and the smart cities of tomorrow, the capacity of the grid is always up for question. So what's your view on that when you're kind of thinking about the long game? Yeah, that, this is the part I get super excited about. And you, you caught me on a good day today, actually. We, I was with um, academics this morning talking through this um, with Ben Batcher West, our chief digital officer. Um, this is really exciting for us. This is where the innovation for us as a business is. Um, we're excited about having EV charging points that are really intelligent, not just because of the individual charging points, but because of how they can operate as a network. So we did a really interesting project last year called Agile Streets, which demonstrated that essentially by smart charging on public setting, in a public setting, like you can do at home on your driveway with a smart charging point, um, you can save the user a significant amount of money and you can also reduce the stress on the grid. And essentially, we're doing that by phase shifting when charging takes place. So the networks will at the moment talk about day-night tariffs. That's completely different. That is not what we're talking about here. Agile capability, or as we've brought, to, as we're bringing to the market at the end of this year, and as we proved last year, was essentially if we know when you're collecting your vehicle, we can then manage charging over the period of time that you're going to be plugged in there. So no change in your behaviour just a change in the way the charger operates. So if you plug in at 7 p.m. in the evening, peak hour or peak hours, we don't necessarily need to fast charge you straight away. We can actually wait, delay it until the power price becomes cheaper or alternatively the way you look at it, uh, when the power um, uh, when the power supply becomes more abundant and less constrained. Essentially, the power price goes down. That's when we start to charge your vehicle. So we can do that today. That will be launched across our network later this year. We get really excited about that. And that is the first time I think that EV charging networks stop being a threat to the power industry and instead start to be a supporter of it. You take that one step further, all of our users are quite habitual. We're in residential settings or workplace settings and council car parks. We see regular habitual behaviors. So being able to forecast that demand to the grid is incredibly valuable to the grid. And then if you take it one step further than that, we can actually start to influence demand from our users. And that's where I get really excited, because if you can influence demand where I can say, hey, you know, Jenny, don't charge today. Could you charge tomorrow? It's going to be really windy and sunny. Not everyone in the in our user group is going to be OK with that because they might need their car. But say 10 percent of our user group, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in the future that are basically able to go, yeah, you know, what? I'm going to be plugged in anyway. So I'll wait till tomorrow to charge. And then we actually act as a sponge being able to take more renewable power into the Uh, into the grid essentially as opposed to at the moment turning it off so i get really excited by that and i think that moves it away from being a question of is there enough capacity in the grid because none of the power industry is saying they don't have enough total capacity they're saying they don't have it at certain times of the day well the beauty of long dwell charging is you don't care when your car is charging as long as it's charged when you come and collect it so it's it's a that's why we're so obsessed with for us it's less about the size of the pipe into the car which is the case with rapids it's all about how fast can you get power in instead we're all focused on how intelligent can we charge how how intelligently can we charge your car that's the difference i think that kind of comes back to your point earlier about there being room for everyone there's a a charger for every circumstance and if you can use the right one for the right circumstances that then massively decreases the pressure on the grid yeah, and if you can understand how the grid's operating as well, and I think this is where I know the grid wants to get to, it isn't yet. But if you're also then looking at route mapping, when you've got millions of vehicles moving around the UK, 
and they're all little batteries that are potentially going to be taking power into them over the next, I don't know, 150 miles on their journey, being able to direct them to charging points where they're less constrained from a grid capacity perspective, that's going to be really valuable in future. So I think this becomes incredibly dynamic and, again, something that is able to balance the grid rather than being a threat to it. I'm talking about kind of broader nationwide electrification. I know you're a big believer in that local authorities certainly hold the key to this. Can you uh, explain to our listeners why that is? Yeah, I mean, local authorities hold the key to it and potentially can slow it down. Um, uh, They face a huge number of barriers and uncertainty themselves, and we'd love to see more guidance coming from government to make their jobs more easy. So local authorities essentially control the streets and they control the car parks. So there is, if you're trying to serve that portion of society that has to park on street, they are critical to work with. Um, They also have the opportunity to drive massive efficiencies. They're already doing roadworks. They are working um, with street lighting organizations and others. So there's an opportunity when you're going and looking at these streets to be trying to drive efficiency. Uh, As a business, we're very interested in not only EV charging, but also ancillary services. So I've already touched on the grid balancing opportunity. But for us, there's also opportunities around IoT. And so we're in conversations with councils about that as well. We think our infrastructure should be serving as many different use cases as it possibly can. Um, And so, again, local authorities are a massive key to that. I think local authorities are driven now. They've all, almost all of them have declared climate emergencies and they are also acutely aware of the inequality that exists in terms of access to some of this green technology. And I think, again, if you're you're motivated like we are um, on those topics, then working with local authorities is massive. I think some of the challenges that local authorities have is a lack of um, capability, not just in terms of um, numbers of people, but in expertise. This is this is a relatively new industry, so having that expertise is going to be key. And again, I think that's where the government can help, not just in providing cash, but also providing training and guidance um, on it, and also maybe changing some of the rules and regulations in place. There, the planning rules are not fit for purpose at the moment for EV charging, and therefore getting approvals for this to go out on street is sometimes challenging. And to that point. I think it would be useful again for government to give support to councils, to give them confidence in making sometimes difficult decisions. As you'll know, people who are supportive of stuff are often quiet. People who are anti-stuff are often very loud. Um, And so you can get one very loud person that drowns out the 99 people who are quite supportive, and then those tend to stop projects. And I'd like to see councils sometimes being more bold than that, recognising the constraints that they work within. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, And actually, that's going to bring us back into, um, you talked about kind of external challenges, but I'd like to come back into the the mind of a CEO. Um, And on this show, we try to talk about the industry, what's happening, kind of trends, but also the people aspect. Um, A lot of our listeners are really fascinated by the psychology of running a business, particularly in this space, one which I guess there's always pulls from many directions when, of course, you need to have a profitable business, um, but also it's balancing that with the environmental impact. So in terms of the challenges you face um, from an internal perspective of growing a company at pace um, in a sector that is so new, what are the big headaches you've got? Well, one of the challenges for us has been, and I don't want to sound boastful on this, is the success that we've had as a business in terms of winning work. And we won work because of the ethos and the ideals of the business to be focused on that social and environmental agenda. 
in everything that we do meant that we won an awful lot of contracts. And when you win those contracts, you have to scale significantly. And so we've grown from pre-pandemic, we were, I think, nine or 11 people. And we're now um, significantly over 100. I think we're about 125. Um, That drives a cultural change in the business. So you, you have to try and work out ways that you can maintain that and maintain the good things and try and drop some of the maybe more challenging things that you have when you're a tiny team. So that that cultural change is is a challenge, but I think is a huge opportunity as well. You have to professionalize businesses as you grow, but you have to have that real founder mentality at the start. You've got to just believe in everything that you can do and you've got to move really quickly. Whereas as you grow, you've got to get a bit more process and things in place. So that's challenging. Um, but I, again, I think a, a big opportunity, I think we touched earlier on on the the context for things and trying to have perspective that's always really 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 hard but i think is something that we try and work on all the time and and as a first time ceo what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned so far well it was a, it wasn't necessarily a lesson it was something that we had the opportunity to prove which was sort of touched on a little bit in your in your first question actually which i didn't i didn't answer or the question you just asked rather which is on how do you um the balance of environment versus economics and i don't think they're they're separate. I think, um, particularly in our space, that's why we're focused on the infrastructure side of things. So when you're, um, uh, there was a lot of sort of question marks around, well, how how are you going to balance the the goals that you've got from environmental environmental perspective to to then try and build a business? Well, for us, actually, the longer life, the more reliable, the more environmentally sustainable the infrastructure we deploy, the better it is from an economic perspective. If I'm having to, I had a message from someone um, this morning on LinkedIn telling me that they'd seen the charging points over the last three years on their street be ripped out every 12 months. Um, that is not good from an environmental perspective and it must be terrible from a business perspective. Whereas we've tried to build our kit to be both recyclable and sort of from a circular economy perspective, um, try and take on board some of those things. And that means that we can have confidence that the modularity of the system means it will last over a 15 to 25 year contract, which means we can sign 15 to 25 year contracts with confidence. So that's been not so much a lesson, but a real opportunity to prove something and to try and drive the market. I suppose as a lesson for me would be I thought when I um, became CEO, I had this sort of view of it being the sort of um, Nirvana sort of position where you'd just be going and like having an amazing time, sort of cocktail parties and stuff and having the opportunity to talk to lovely people like you and and talk about this sort of stuff. But actually, um, it's a it's a difficult role and you have to be involved in everything but not involved in everything because if you try and get involved in everything then you cause massive problems but you've got to know when to get involved and not to get involved too early because otherwise you undermine your team um, and you need to give them support but not step in too much but equally give them guidance on when things need to be escalated um yeah it's it's very difficult and and you are in a it's a wonderful position it is a position of privilege but sometimes quite a lonely position because you have the investors looking at you and scrutinizing everything you do and sometimes celebrating success but not always um, and then also your team in the environment we're in now as a society I think people are always expecting more and they expect perfection and so that's also quite a difficult one you 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 recognize that and we're, a, I think I, I'm very fortunate. We've got an absolutely fantastic team internally and, and a lovely team. But you also have to recognize sometimes that when you're the CEO, you're not part of the team. You can't, you can't be at the pub at midnight 
it's not it's not quite the same whether you want to be or not sometimes i'm tired anyway so i just need to go home but you know what i mean it's it's a different it's a different role and that's something that takes a little bit of time to get used to i'm not that old so i'd sometimes still like to be in the pub but you just can't <laughs> no i i hear you and i feel you there's a time and a place it's like that moment you recognize that mum and dad should go home <laughs> yeah when when you recognize that you being there is stopping other people from having fun yeah. so it's that's a sad that's a sad moment so um but it is still an incredible job and and being able to employ amazing people who are smarter than you continuously is an amazing thing and i think as you as i've got older i've got more and more confident in being able to employ many people who are cleverer than me and not being threatened by that and actually seeing that as a wow i am i'm really privileged that they are prepared to come and work for us uh, that's a real honor and it surprises me continuously that people are prepared to come and do that. So that's a really nice thing. That's a really nice aspect of the job. And, and being fortunate enough to know pretty much all of your top team, you've actually built an incredibly diverse top table. Um, but I would I would echo that they're they're very each very brilliant in their own right, but also get along phenomenally, which I think is so important when you're a company the size you are and growing at the pace you are. So. You must have a great search firm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. And if you if you meet the extended leadership team, the extended leadership team is is equally as wonderful. And those are the future leaders within the business. Um, I mean, we're going internationally now, so there is an opportunity for people to be stepping up across the organisation. It's a very difficult thing that we're trying to do. A lot of our a lot of players within our industry are more focused narrowly focused than us they might just be a manufacturer of hardware or they might buy third-party hardware and install it using third-party software we do the whole gamut um, and that means i need to have a lot of different and diverse expertise within the business i can't just have um, people thinking in exactly the same way sometimes that that means there's arguments and conflict but uh, the aim not always achieved the aim is to try and have that um, that disagreement done in the right way a lot of sense um, and one thing that always strikes me when we talk is that you're an extremely positive person and I think when you're in a job that you've just described being pulled in a hundred different directions it's sometimes what I imagine I don't always manage it I'm a relatively positive person myself but how do you go about maintaining that positivity is it something from outside of work or is it something that you draw on within your work? Uh, a bit of both. I, I mean, I get to work with fantastic people. So on days when I might be less positive, I see some of the people in the office who are incredibly positive. Um, I come back to the sort of the reason why I left Ernst & Young and, um, and joined the team to start building this was my first son had just been born and I wanted to be able to look back on my career when it comes to an eventual end, um, hopefully a long time from now. Um, and be able to think that I tried to do something positive in the face of all the environmental challenges that we face right now and would be able to look at him and my youngest son in the eye and sort of say I tried something. So I think I feel very positive about that. Um, I also see the feedback that we get from our customers. The feedback is fantastic. It's not always. I mean, we make mistakes, but the feedback and when you get customers on board, they are so passionate about this. This is a, some, a, a topic that divides society but is a topic that people get really, really passionate about. So it's difficult not to be positive in that. And then I'm also very lucky with um, my wife as well. Uh, I, I have complete stability at home um, and support at home. Um, and that allows me to um, be able to deal with the stresses and strains of trying to grow a business in a, in a fast growth market. Lovely. 
Um, and that brings me to my very last question, um, which I ask most of our guests actually is, is advice for other people out there. So whether that's someone thinking I could start my own business or run my own business in this space, or I'm in a career where I don't feel that great sense of purpose and be that EV or be another area of kind of clean tech or clean energy, what would your advice to that person be in terms of how could they navigate the, uh, the route into this industry? Um, there's a, well, I mean, I'd, I'd always say go for it in that I don't think many people get to their end of their life regretting the decisions they've taken. I think most people would regret not taking decisions. Um, that would be my take. Certainly. I don't think I've regretted any decisions I've taken, but I've certainly regretted things I didn't do. Um, uh, cause I think you're then in a position of you've got choices, um, rather than closing things off. I think also, I would try and always listen to the data. There's lots of people with strong opinions and you always have to use data to try and provide context. If you have the data, you can then often challenge whether things are right or not because you will have negative setbacks. And if you're able to sort of look at the data and put things into context, then I think um, that will help you an awful lot. There will be days when it's really, really, really tough. But if you have that data and you can you can reflect on that, that's positive. And then the final part would be, which builds on that is, the data also tells you whether you're moving in the right direction. If you can look back each week, and again, I said this earlier on, if you can look back each week and go, it's better this week than it was last week. And the same for the week before. You don't have to be making massive strides every single week. It's just not going to happen. But if you can show a continual progress, then then I think that's positive. Fantastic. Well, great advice. Um, and thank you very much for joining us today and sharing the story. Um, it's been amazing to watch what you've been doing at Connected Curve and see the team grow and develop. But also, I think there's just so much potential in what you're doing and and your peers in the industry are doing so yeah thank you thank you for having us and there's lots more to come so please keep watching <laughs>